what I'll do over the next 45 odd minutes is uh, I'll first give you a context of why I started and how I started working on this research. Uh, why was this important to me and generally why is it important to look at India in Afghanistan for anyone? Then having done that, I'll kind of introduce the central question that the book asks and what the, uh, the argument is, what the answer to that question is based on my research uh, over a period of few years and how the idea has been to not just look at a case study, uh, generally understood, under, uh, understudied, but uh, highly discussed. It's a very political, politically kind of potent issue in the region of what Indians are doing in Afghanistan for the Indians, for the Afghans, uh, but more so and mostly so for, for, from a Pakistani perspective because it makes uh, Pakistan anxious about India's role in that country uh, and has broader implications. So there is a, there's a, the hope was to add empirical value uh, to South Asian studies literature within the field of international relations, but also to use the case of India and how India makes its foreign policy uh, to advance international relations kind of conceptual literature, especially within the subfield of foreign policy analysis. So that was the two kind of core planks on which I hoped that uh, the book would be able to kind of contribute a little. Uh, how much, how well it has succeeded, the jury is still out. Uh, but well, it is. It, it has made its. It's you know. It has made its point as far as I was concerned. So I started. This was part of my uh, PhD research. I started in 2011 uh, at King's College London. 2011 is a very interesting year, right? I mean, in many ways, if you look at Afghanistan in 2011 and the debates around Afghanistan, what the Americans are thinking, what the Europeans are thinking, how the Brits are positioning, the Taliban is fully back entrenched as a full-scale insurgency. The debate is that, look, we cannot really have a military solution to this. And we have already had a surge when President Obama came in in 2009, uh, 2008 as president. We need to move out. We need to give a plan of you know, leaving Afghanistan within a set timeline. And we need to figure out, while we are slowly kind of drawing down, we are withdrawing uh, all the NATO ISAF forces, what can we do to ensure that this is a stable country? That's a fundamental question being addressed in a variety of capitals in the world. And one of the core kind of advocacy, this was made by Hillary Clinton in 2011, was we need the regional powers to come at some sort of a consensus to kind of, you know, not play their dirty game, so-called, uh, not play the great game. Uh, you know, great game is a historical term often associated with Afghanistan, but not just. Uh, not play the great game in Afghanistan. So the Iranians and the Saudis should not be fighting, the Indians and the Pakistanis should not be fighting, uh, the Chinese should not be competing with us. So if we can have, if we can reduce this, this template of competition and conflict, uh, we would have succeeded to some extent. It didn't happen. It never happened. I mean, you know, and there is good reason for that. You know, no, every, every country was hedging its bet. And when this idea of having you know, a neutral Afghanistan similar to the kind of Swiss model was being advocated in 2011, the constant counter from Pakistan was, wait a second, India is there in a very strong way. We can't accept such a widespread Indian presence in the developmental sector, in the political sector. This is anti-Pakistan's national interest. This is against our national interest. So we need to have a conversation about it, or else we continue using whatever tools we have to our, to our disposal to kind of continuing to undermine. I mean, they didn't say it in those many words, of course. Uh, but there was very clear, uh, it was laid very clearly that, you know, India's role in Afghanistan should be either very minimal 
or ideally none at all. So why, you know, what is it that India is really doing? That's what really piques my interest. That is it really, I mean, what firstly we don't know exactly what Indians are really doing apart from the occasional news reports that come about their developmental projects. So, and is India thinking in a similar line, you know, uh, line of argument? Is it really uh, a proxy warfare? And this is the usual term that came to typify Indo-Pakistan relations in Afghanistan. Is India also fighting a proxy warfare as Pakistan claims that they are? Um, so this is what, this is how it, it began that, wait a second, Afghanistan is in, important for India for its own regional strategic interests and its relationship with Pakistan. So very clearly India has an important role as far as it, sees its own role in the region uh, and its presence in Afghanistan. It has invested $2.3 billion in various different uh, developmental sectors, big projects, small projects. So Afghanistan is important for the Indian policy elite. Uh, and it also is turning out to be the case that the role of India is important if you want to have any sort of reconciliation as was being imagined or hoped for at that point in time from a global perspective, if you want to have some sort of a uh, kind of modus operandi with the regional powers in Afghanistan. So suddenly this, the value of, of India increases in some direct and indirect ways in context of the Afghan conflict and its future. And this myth of proxy warfare was you know, recurring again and again that India is there to contain Pakistan and Pakistan is there to contain Indian influence in Afghanistan. So this is where the central question of my PhD, but also my book that you know, became uh, my book, uh, My Enemy's Enemy actually came. The central question I ask is, is containing Pakistan the key driver of India's <laughs> Afghanistan policy? Is this really true? Um, the answer I reach is, on this specific question, the answer is a no. This is not true. Just containing Pakistan is not the be all and end all of what India does in Afghanistan and why it does the way it does and when it does it, whatever it is. That's not the case. But yes, its relationship with Pakistan is very important when India is looking at Afghanistan. And distilling the two is very important to make sense of what this country is really up to uh, and why it matters. Uh, you see that there is, you know, when I go in the field, I use a lot of archival material, a lot of secondary, you know, prime sources in terms of uh, newspaper articles uh, from different parts of the world, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, Western newspapers, um, and conducting nearly 110 odd interviews with policy makers in India, with policy makers in Afghanistan, with combatants in Afghanistan. Uh, and generally, I, I'm very open to the idea of appreciating the Pakistani perspective here. You know, these anxieties are not pointless. It's easy to rubbish them. Uh, Indian policymaker would rubbish them very easily that this is an excuse. But you have to give it its due share of kind of you know space uh, that it is there. Um, you see, I, I realize that there is a consensus in India, and you would often, if you follow what Indian policymakers say about Afghanistan, is we want a stable a territorially united and a sovereign Afghanistan, hopefully prosperous too. Uh, but prosperity is not really at the top of our agenda for obvious reasons. But all these basic core principles of international relations, a viable state that can stand on its own is important. And there is something to be said about it. One thing is you can say that this is just diplomatic kind of spiel being given. Partly that's true. And they will also throw in this whole idea of, oh, it's a civilizational relationship, which in practice means very little. I mean, India has a civilizational relationship with a variety of its neighbors. So, so they're pitching it, they're framing it in, in societal and cultural terms, which is fine. Uh, but there is genuinely a consensus in India that you would like to see an Afghanistan that is not 
break, you know, which is territorially united, which is a viable state. Ideally, as it was before the Soviet intervention happened in 79, which really unleashes a lot of uh, kind of, you know, internal centri centrifugal forces and makes them very violent, whether it was between the Islamists and the communists, or between different Mujahideen factions, the internal civil war in the 90s, or between the Taliban and the Afghan government, as we have seen post-2001. Um, the debate in India, and this is very important, comes into how you reach this goal. You have an endpoint, right? How do you operationalize it? How, what do you do to make sure that your idea of a viable Afghanistan gets realized in whatever time frame you imagine it to be the case? And you know that you don't have the capacities to actually deliver on this. You cannot go into nation building. Uh, you are still, there are a lot of kind of domestic constraints, capability constraints. So what should you do? And this is where the debate becomes very interesting. And this is this debate which I'll articulate is what kind of pushed me into concluding that the answer to my central question was actually a no. <coughs> there is a spectrum on which the question is being debated. One spectrum of the debate is what I term as partisans. And the partisans say, Yes, we should talk to everyone in Afghanistan who is against Pakistan. We should, whether it's the Northern Alliance, whether it's Pashtun groups, whoever is fighting Pakistani-sponsored groups should be our friends. That is our operating principle on the ground. It's a fairly simple realpolitik, my enemy's enemy principle. Uh, this actually helps containing Pakistan's influence or you know, complicating Pakistan's own agenda towards Afghanistan, however you envision it, whether it's strategic depth or whether it is something else completely. So this is a very clear operating principle. And this, these, these ideas you know, uh, are shared by people in, across bureaucracies. It's not that the intelligence is particularly hawkish and the military is not, or the MEA is particularly uh, soft or moderate and, uh, and any other prime minister office is not. This is the idea being debated on its own merit. And it had cachet at different points in time. But the, and, you know, uh, then there is another argument that says, look, you cannot expect Afghanistan not to have any relationship with Pakistan, and you cannot have, you cannot realistically expect Pakistan not to have anything to do in Afghanistan. It's not possible. You know, this is you have to understand this geography, and India is not geographically, for all practical purposes, uh, connected with Pakistan. I mean, they have the legal thing, with, but Kashmir is disputed, but they don't have contiguous borders. So you are far away. Pakistan is close by. So they will have some role. You know, you have to be pragmatic. So what you should do is instead of supporting and talking to and giving political, military, financial support on the basis of anti-Pakistan partisanship, you talk to everyone in Afghanistan. You talk, to, you talk to the Taliban, you talk to the Mujahideen, you talk to the Northern Alliance, you talk to the civil society elite, you talk to everyone so that whenever whoever comes to power in Kabul at different points in time, you have some operational relationship and you are sure or more or less sure that your interests will not get undermined with a new political dispensation. And you should talk to these people regardless the militancy of their Islam and regardless how close or far they are uh, to the Pakistan's military establishment. Quite unlike the partisans, these are the conciliators. They're like, yes, we knew, we know that there is a problem. We know that we don't get along with Pakistan uh, and Afghans don't get along with Pakistan, but we have to be a bit more practical here. We have limited capacities. Let's keep our options open. Now, there is, you can see a lot of churn, a lot of flux, and this debate is a continuous debate whether the partisans influence policy output or the conciliators influence policy output, then I'll, I'll tell you who reaches, who's able to determine policy uh, from time to time in a second. Um, 
but this debate is ongoing, and this debate has been ongoing since, you know, at least since the Soviet withdrawal when it became acute. But those, those, that dilemma has always been there. It's an enduring strategic dilemma. It's not a contingency planning, okay, that you'll, you'll be out. It's an enduring dilemma. And this is not a binary. It's not either this or that. It's, it's, it's a spectrum. You can have part, you know, and it, it, these are also not political identities that if there is, a, there is a person who's partisan at some point cannot have a conciliatory approach at another point in time. That's not true. People also move across, uh, across advocacies and they have different ways of dealing with different things at different points in time. And it cuts across India's political and bureaucratic spectrum. So this has nothing to do with the BJP being a Hindu right uh, by definition being antithetical to either Islam or, or uh, Pakistan. That's not true. Actually, you see many conciliators coming from within the BJP's fold and many partisans coming from the Congress fold, which would say uh, it's a secular party. So it has nothing really to do with the domestic political changes in the country as, as such. It's a national level debate. Uh, and as I mentioned, even within bureaucracies, some of the core conciliators I've seen were actually part of the research and analysis wing, which is India's <coughs> external intelligence wing, which Pakistan holds responsible for most of its uh, problems. Uh, and I mean, to, you know, at different points at different time. So you can see that this is a debate which has its own values. You know, you don't have to focus on one institution or the other. Which of the two, why and which of the two determines policy output? There are three drivers which influences this policy debate. The first and the most important driver is India's traditional desire to strike a balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I think this is the least appreciated desire. Whether you're a partisan or you're a conciliator, you want to make sure that neither is, that firstly Pakistan is not too overbearing a presence or influence on the politics of Afghanistan, but also the society of Afga Afghan society. You know, you don't want that excessive overshadowing of domestic politics of Afghanistan by Pakistani kind of interventionism uh, of different sorts. But you also don't want the Afghans or the social, so, you know, the social problems in Afghan society to percolate into Pakistan. This was a serious concern in the late 90s when the Indian policymaker is worrying that, wait, we are looking at a potential phase of excessive radicalization inside Pakistan, this cannot be in our interest. You know, you, you have to make sure that there is a functioning, uh, a functioning state here and a state that is actually vibrant to counter these radical impulses. Now, one can debate that, okay, there are radical impulses in India as well and no one can debate that, but this is how the policymaker is thinking, that you need to make sure that there is a balance between these two countries. This is a very important driver and whenever you see the balance shifting, let's say, too much in favor of Pakistan, automatically you see the partisans, the value of partisan advocacy rising in India's policy circles. Um, the second driver is the international political environment. What is it that the Soviet Union is doing in Afghanistan? Who, are this, who is Moscow supporting during the 80s? Is it the Parchamis or the Khalkis? Are they talking to the Mujahideen or are they not talking to the Mujahideen? If you have a very powerful relationship with the big power which is present on the ground, that will, very, that will invariably impact your own calculus, whatever the debate is. So even if there is a sense of partisanship in India, but the Soviet Union in the 80s or late 80s is like, no, sorry, we want to talk to the Mujahideen, we want to talk to Pakistan, you'll have to accept that. 
So that also kind of plays into which of the two sides. And this happened in 86 onwards. Gorbachev in top secret C uh, uh, CPSU, the PBM meetings of the Communist Party of Soviet Union is openly saying that we need to talk to Zia, uh, Zia and we, you know, I can't bank on India in delivering, uh, you know, a peaceful withdrawal from Afghanistan. So whatever Rajiv Gandhi is saying, it doesn't really matter to me. Let's go ahead and talk to the Pakistanis. India was on a very powerful partisan force. They didn't want to talk to the Mujahideen in the, uh, you know, uh, before 92 actually. They were like, we are all only for Najib and the communists and the secular parties. But they had to accept what the Soviet Union was doing. So there is, and similarly, in the 90s and the 2000s, you see the regional calculus, what the Russians or the Iranians are doing, post-2001, what the Americans are doing, that continuously conditions and shapes and influences, whether it's the partisans or the conciliators, which are actually implementing foreign policy output in terms of Afghanistan. The third driver is domestic politics of Afghanistan itself. Now, I don't know if you followed much about uh, India-Afghanistan relations, you would see one term which would come very often is Indians have tremendous goodwill among Afghans. And it's actually true. I mean, I've seen that in action while in Afghanistan. There is a lot of uh, uh, warmth at a very basic human level. And I'm sure that will be the same in Pakistan, but I've never been to Pakistan, unfortunately. Uh, but in Afghanistan, you can see that it's a very politicized warmth as well. You're an Indian, you're not a Pakistani. Thank God, let's talk. Uh, it is almost, I mean, it's very sad in some ways, as much it is, it is overwhelming and nice. Um, and that has come to, you know, make many Indian policymakers, but not just Indians, even outside India, people think that Indians would be accepted by anyone and everyone and are valued highly by every political unit in Afghanistan. That's not true. If you see at different points in time, India's value, political and strategic value, has actually been fairly limited, even if the larger bilateral relationship has been good. On core brass tack issues, when, they are when the Afghans are negotiating about reconciliation, about talks with the Taliban, with the Pakistanis, they can use the India card to kind of provoke the other side. But at the end of the day, they know that Indians can't step in to do your talking for you. 2014, when President Ghani came to power, the first thing he did was he pushed India out of this room, that we are not doing any deals with you. You get out of the room. Let me give an honest try to kind of having some kind of a dialogue with Pakistan, because at the end of the day, our problem is with our neighbor, that is Pakistan. Iran, OK, but more than Iran, it's Pakistan. That, I mean, Indian policymakers were pretty angry about that. They were concerned that, you know, if it becomes a long-standing uh, you know, issue, then we'll be completely be sidelined here. But I mean, they were also hoping that Pakistan will not deliver and then Pak Afghans will get frustrated and come back to us. And that's exactly what had happened. Uh, there was not much forthcoming, not much response from Pakistan to President Ghani. And I think, I personally think that that was an opportunity lost. But this was also the case with Karzai. In 2002, when Karzai comes to power, he talks to, he's talking to every Indian uh, in the room, but he's very clear that, you know, there is a problem. The India-Pakistan rivalry is a competition then, uh, you know, Indian presence is too overbearing sometimes, and we don't want that. So we need to keep this in perspective. And let me talk to the Pakistanis. The Mujahideen, when they came in 92, they were also very concerned that, look, uh, you guys have been supporting the wrong side all these years. Why should we talk to you? So it's, it's, it's not as if just because there's goodwill at a social level suddenly translates into political capital. That's not been the case. But you also see that after that initial kind of uh, tri trial and testing phase with, of negotiations with Pakistan, when Afghans feel most frustrated, the country they come back to is India. 
because they know that this, psychologically this will play uh, quite well in an, in, a, in an aggressive way with Pakistan. Just to give you now this framework, you know, the partisans versus conciliators, the spectrum of debate, and the three, the three drivers of this debate, which is striking a balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan, international political environment, and domestic politi politics of Afghanistan. How does that framework work in real time? Let me give some examples. Some, like, you know, and you can see in Afghanistan, there have been many pivotal moments. So in 1980, when the Soviet Union goes in, the, this is 79, <coughs> December 79, the, the prime minister at that time in, of India was not Indira Gandhi, it was Charan Singh. And Charan Singh is a lame duck prime minister for all practical measures. He knows that he's, he's out of the game. He's a, almost a caretaker prime minister. And he tells both the Soviet ambassador in Delhi and tells the Indian ambassador in Moscow to tell Soviet Union that this intervention, this invasion is unacceptable. They're like, if anything, we understand what the Pakistanis are going through right now much better than anyone can. This is a sacred, you know, you've broken a sacred rule. You have entered South Asia. This is our region of influence. We might have problems with Pakistan, but you are not allowed to enter the way you have done. This is disrespecting Afghan sovereignty. Indira Gandhi in private actually, who came just two weeks after this, this policy statement has been given, she comes to power and she changes the whole thing. And there's a very clear consensus that, okay, yes, I completely, you know, she's like, I have to be, I'm here for a longer time, unlike Charan Singh, who could afford to kind of anger, potentially anger the Soviet leadership. Uh, but we are dependent on Soviet Union. So let's privately criticize them that you have done the wrong thing. But publicly, we should posture in a way that we are supportive of this, this intervention. This is a moment, a fascinating moment. I mean, yes, there is a lot of uh, concern about a continuous arms race between India and Pakistan, which did happen after that. But the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, SARC, it got formed in 1982. There's a very good reason for that. And that's because India and Pakistan were actually on board that we need to get together if we want to keep external pressures out of our region so that we can talk bilaterally. You can play Americans against us, you can play Soviets against us, but this is a very kind of brass tax presence which we can't deal with. So let's get together and talk. And that is how the Soviet Union, the Soviet intervention actually triggered uh, the idea of having a regional association uh, that will hopefully, but unsuccessfully uh, in reality, hopefully bring these countries together uh, and connect them with each other. 1987-88, when the Soviet Union is going out, this is a very big concern for India. What is the country you know you leave uh, back, leave apart, uh, behind when you leave? Till now, India has supported whoever the Soviets were supporting, but they know that the Americans and the Pakistanis have their own favorites, as the Mujahideen. One thing which India did and did quite kind of well behind public eye was covertly using its intelligence apparatus and using journalists and academics, you know, civil society members, it started reaching out to every Mujahideen faction, including the Hikmatyar, uh, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, who was like, at that point, considered to be the emir of the larger Mujahideen umbrella, the most powerful after perhaps, or even more so than Ahmed Shah Massoud. You're reaching out to everyone covertly. And you are on the, sh publicly you're saying, no, 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 we can't have anything to do with Mujahideen. Covertly, you have started reaching out to everyone. And this is a moment when India is realizing, wait, we do have a lot of political capital here. There is actually quite a lot of convergence between how the Mujahideen is thinking about Afghanistan and how we are thinking. So in 91, 92, I mean, of course, that, that engagement did not tilt India's policy uh, in favor of a conciliatory tilt towards the Mujahideen at that point in time. 
because then you would have to give up on an ally that's President Mohammad Najibullah, the communist president who became not so communist soon after the Soviet Union left. Uh, so you said that, okay, we'll keep on investing in Najib and hope that he lasts long, uh, but we'll have keep our options open. In 92, when the coup happened, uh, you know, when the Mujahideen actually came to power, India had actually planned an exfiltration operation at 3 in the morning on 17th April to get Najib out of the country. Two weeks before, they had already exfiltrated his wife and his daughters and put them in safe houses in Delhi. And they were actually, they had planned a very detailed operation with the knowledge of the United Nations representatives on the ground. There was a plane waiting at the, tam at, at the airport in Kabul and they were not able to make the dash at the middle of the night because it was uh, Najib's own kind of militias known, you know, the militias from Jozan by Abdul Rashid Dostum, who's now a very important political figure in Afghan politics and became much more important as a Uzbek warlord in the 90s. He turned his back against Najib that night. Otherwise, most likely Najib would have been in India, not have been killed, and would have been offered as a fait accompli to the Mujahideen uh, factions uh, once they had been in power. And hopefully India thought that maybe they would have cultivated him as an option that failed. 92, there is, when this happens, within one week after this failed exfiltration attempt, the Indian ambassador on the ground goes and presents his credential to Mujahideen, the new Mujahideen president, and says that we are open to do, doing business, we have nothing to do with uh, Najib anymore, and let's talk. So a country which has, for the whole of 80s, for a whole decade, decided not to talk with the Mujahideen because they're anti-India, they're pro-Pakistan, suddenly goes and starts engaging with every Mujahideen faction. So this is where the, the shift, why the shift happens is exactly because of all these drivers uh, playing out and how, you know, whether it's the partisans or the conciliators determining policy shift. But why is it that in 92, India is talking to the Mujahideen, which had its own problems with Pakistan, but was also strategically dependent in many ways on Pakistani and Saudi support. In 96, when Taliban comes, India doesn't want to talk to them. In fact, the Taliban wants to talk to the Indians. They are like, please talk to us because we don't want to be dependent on only these two or three countries, Saudi, UAE, and Pakistan, mostly Pakistan. So please talk to us. I mean, you know, we know you have concerns, but let's, you know, this is an Indo, this is Afghan to Indian relationship. Let's not get religion and all this stuff. Every year, starting 96, Taliban reached out to India, sometimes openly, sometimes behind closed doors. And every time, India said, no, we are not talking to you. And India was the last country to leave. Why is it that at that point, from conciliation to partisanship, why is there such a shift? The usual uh, explanation till now has been, one, Pakistan, uh, Pakistani support, it's a Pakistani-created militia, okay. Two, they're Islamists. Three, they're misogynistic. They're killing people, so human rights. None of them was, the mo was that important a factor in real-time decision-making. In fact, in 97, when Hira, I think Mazar fell or Hira, Herat fell, March 97, I'm forgetting the city, sorry. Uh, India, the Ministry of External Affairs is actually seriously considering opening up a channel to the Taliban, thinking that these are the new realities, we have to deal with them. Whether they are pro-Pakistan or not pro-Pakistan, doesn't matter. This is what Afghanistan is like. We cannot afford not to be in this country at all. I have no presence, so let's do it. But this is where the interesting things come, and this is where the international political environment becomes so critical. If India had done that, this is, you know, uh, 
firstly, it would not have been able to build that kind of a relationship because of its geographical you know, uh, distance with, the, with, with, with Afghanistan, with limited assets on the ground. So it had to do it with regional international partners who were willing to hopefully talk to the Taliban, and there not, were not many partners. The two countries which were very important were Russia and Iran, especially Iran. And neither of the two were interested in actually talking to the Taliban. They were like, Iran had its own Shia Sunni issue, and Russians were like, firstly, we have our own issues we are dealing with. Secondly, we have gone through the whole different kinds of, you know, states have create, been created in post-Soviet space. Uh, and there is a proper, there's an insurgency in Chechnya, and we don't want a radical Islamist movement uh, thinking that we are supporting them or being lukewarm towards them. We'll take a very aggressive stand. It is this regional calculus which pushes the partisans into a very dominating position within India. It's not as much how much the Pakistanis are supporting the Taliban or how, how bad the Taliban is in or in, you know, in itself. So it is very important to distill what is it that is shaping. You have a cost to pay. Here for a change in mid-90s, late-90s, the Iranians and the Russians are equally supporting you on Kashmir. Why do you want to give that by creating, you know, by, you know, by talking to the Taliban without the promise of having a serious relationship with the Taliban in the late 90s? Let the Pakistanis do it. It's easy. Let's just fight. And this is the phase which became, I mean, this is where the proxy war was at its best, at its most intense. And you can see both the Indian intelligence, not just raw, but military intelligence, literally giving millions and millions of rupees, uh, arms, spare parts uh, to, to the Northern Alliance and all those factions which are fighting the Taliban. And it's, it's, you know, on this I would say Pakistani details and narratives are actually more or less accurate uh, of what India was doing at that point in time. Quickly, I see there are five minutes more. I think you're even about 10 to 10. 15. Oh, brilliant. So then we can go into the post-2001 phase uh, mm -hmm. uh, as well. So 2001 happens, right? Uh, before 2001 happens, 1999 December happens. What happens? Anyone who has been following this remembers what happened in December 99 between India, Afghanistan, Pakistan? Plane hijack. Plane hijack, exactly. This was an Air India plane, right? It was a plane that flew from Kathmandu, was supposed to land in Delhi. And this plane, instead of landing in Delhi, was hijacked en route, was taken to Amritsar. It actually landed in Amritsar. They never switched the engines off, the hijackers. They were from the Harkatul Ansar. Uh, and they were able to somehow escape Amritsar, despite the Indian authorities knowing that their plane has been hijacked by Kashmir-centric militants, who most likely have connects with Pakistan, uh, and they're not able to save the plane. So this plane flies out from Amritsar, travels a little, goes to Dubai, I think. Lahore. Lahore, thanks. Lahore, because it didn't have any fuel, so it gets refueled uh, in Lahore. And this is a lot of kind of, you know, the Pakistanis literally switched off the airport lights, Lahore airport lights, so that the plane can't land. So the pilot is going to land the plane on a highway. And they were like, this is going to be a grave you know, humanitarian situation we can't afford. So they land on Lahore, get their fuel, go to Dubai, kind of, you know, allow some women and children to leave. And the plane finally lands after within 24 hours in Kandahar. Kandahar in 1999 is the stronghold of the Taliban. It was supposed to land in Kabul. For a lot of technical issues, it landed in Kandahar. Over the next eight days, the Indians are negotiating with the hijackers uh, over a variety of demands. I mean, they, at the end of the negotiations, grueling negotiations, uh, three uh, militants, terrorists, however you like to call them, were released, one of whom was Masood Azhar, and the other was Zagar, and one more guy. 
One of them would go on to financing a lot of uh, global militant operations. This is the time, this is a very important moment for India and the Taliban. The Taliban is thinking, gosh, why is this situation happening on our soil? We don't want to do this. But we can't go and stand up and fight with the ISI or the Pakistanis uh, because our bread and butter is coming from Pakistan. But we don't want to be involved in this whole hijacking drama. And the Indians are saying, the Taliban are puppets of Pakistanis. These guys will not help us do a commando raid. So when the Indians literally had planned a commando raid, uh, which was not allowed to be executed, the Taliban is thinking we can't have bloodshed on our airport. And for good reason. I mean, any mediating party will not want to have bloodshed uh, because one of the two parties is reacting uh, emotionally or rashly. Indians were like, no, you are Pakistani puppets, that's why you're doing it. Taliban is actually helping India to come to a negotiated settlement with the hijackers, but still the perception remains. So on one hand, till from 96 to 99, you had been fed, or you have thought correctly, partly and partly a bit of miscalculation, that Taliban is a proxy of Pakistan. 1999, it becomes deep-rooted. It has hurt Indian sentiment. Three guys who were jailed have been taken from under your noses. You have been able to secure the release of all the passengers. Fine, one passenger died. Uh, he was killed. But uh, the rest you were able to save. But you lost three hardcore militants as far as you are concerned. And the Taliban was party to this whole thing. So there's a very deep disconnect. But this 99 hijacking, which people often in India don't talk about, <coughs> within policy circles started another debate. We have no presence in South and East Pashtun-dominated hinterlands of Afghanistan. We cannot afford it. Had we had some conversation with the Taliban before, maybe we would have been able to influence the outcome of this hijacking in a different way. 2001 happens. Ahmed Shah Massoud is killed, and India is fully and firmly on partisan line, of course, you know, of policy course. And the Americans are going in. They are bombarding. You are welcoming the Americans. You are very happy. And the first and the most important thing that the Indians do is, apart from accepting the presidency of Karzai, who's a Pashtun, is to start building your presence across the country. Suddenly, these consulates start opening up. Some of them are old consulates. These are not, you know, only the Mazar and Herat consulates were new. The Kandahar and Jalalabad consulates were very old. You reopen your consulates, you start sending, putting developmental aid. So the main aim is that, okay, if we can't provide security, we should start influence, increasing our presence in every part of the country so that if another hijacking happens, we are not at loss. We have independent eyes and ears and hopefully can shape the environment in a desirable way. That is where the idea of this you know, uh, multi-level, multi-layered developmental footprint in Afghanistan actually came from. That was also a time when Indians were very keen on training the Afghan army. But the international community is that you're not doing that. Uh, and there was good reason for that, not just about cap capacity issues, but also in December 2001, India and Pakistan came close to war. It's Operation Parakram. Few people, few militants come and attack the Indian parliament. India goes for a full mobilization. I mean, this is a country which is ready to go to war. Uh, it does not, uh, for good reason again, military reasons, if not political, but it decides not to go to war. But it also betrays one thing, that first, your military capabilities either are not sufficient, and two, you cannot afford to get entangled into the affairs of Afghanistan <coughs> beyond a point, because then you'll stretch yourself too thin. So it focuses on all these, you know, building consulates, having presence, economic presence, developmental presence, and trying to just keep an eye out on, on the affairs of what the international community is doing. 
2003, when Iraq happens, surprisingly, I mean, on one hand, the Indian policymaker is debating whether to support the Iraq invasion. There actually, a whole regiment has been, uh, is ready, the Agra regiment, to be deployed in Basra. Uh, on the pressing or the request of the Americans because you have this great moment of uh, strategic alignment with US. But on the other hand, one side of the policymakers are like, this is a bad idea. One, they should not enter Iraq anyways. Two, we should actually ask them to just focus on Afghanistan because this war will go completely tizzy if they don't focus it. Unfortunately, it did go tizzy, as we know today. 2009-10, Obama comes, he wants to go back. And by this time, it's very clear that, you know, uh, Partisanship is not working. The international community is fed up of your bilateral issues with Pakistan. It does not want you to complicate their lives in Afghanistan further. They want you to just stay back. So suddenly this idea of, okay, if we have to stay back, then we need to have to talk to everyone. It starts gaining ground. Official policy advocacy has always been there is no good or bad Taliban. You cannot talk to the Taliban. They're all terrorists. Under the cover, just like in the 80s, from 2000, five onwards, even before, India had started talking without intermediary with every Taliban, Afghan Taliban faction, including at some point the Haqqani network. The same Haqqani network which uh, actually helped executing the attacks that began on Indian consulates, Indian embassy, on Indian uh, personnel in uh, guest houses starting from 2008 July. You're talking to them. You're trying to understand what their requirements is. And something very fascinating comes out of this back-channel diplomacy with the Taliban. And by that time, I don't think the Pakistanis knew that, that those channels were open, or at least did not see them as a threat, even if they knew about it. Uh, the narrative in India was that, okay, let's talk to them. Let's see what they want. But the other side kept coming and saying that, Sorry, uh, that we also have our uh, compulsions. Uh, we can't just go and suddenly uh, come and go get into a strategic embrace with you because we'll have to have a very tough conversation with the Pakistanis. So we, you know, we respect you, we won't kill you, but please don't come and ask too much from us. We can't deliver this. You go and talk to your Northern Alliance and the Kabul government, but yes, we get you. And very thank you so much for building that well, by the way, in the, in the village. Uh, <laughs> uh, so all that, you know, these, these, these conversations are going on. But they realize that, you know, there is not much strategic benefit by talking to the Taliban, even if there is merit in continuing a dialogue. So there is a very conciliatory moment. 2011, India signs a bilateral strategic partnership agreement with Afghanistan. And the most important, the core tenet of that agreement is that India has now accepted or will agree to accept the Afghan government talking to the Afghan Taliban at, you know, till the time they are setting the terms. So you are open to reconciliation till the time your party is not being washed away completely the ally that you have formed, the, the state which has come to be post-2001 because with all this international effort. And it fits very well with American policy projection, with what the British are saying. The British were pushing quite heavily, and they were annoying the Indians very much. In fact, this is we can discuss it during Q&A, how Indians loved to hate Britain on Afghanistan. Um, August 2017, and then I'll finish. Uh, uh, Trump made a speech. I guess we have all heard the speech or parts of the speech. And the speech, the core takeaway of the speech is we are going to fight. I don't want to fight, but my generals are telling me to fight. And the one difference between how I fight and how Obama fought was that I'm not going to put a deadline of return. 
Now, this is a very, I mean, people say that, okay, there's no military pressure, no, all accepted. I don't think there is any military solution to this conflict. I don't think Americans are deluded that there is a military solution. But here is a power which is saying that if you want to play politics, if you say that conflict is an extension of politics, then we are going to play politics in this region for time immemorial. <coughs> so if till now the Taliban and Pakistani ISI is coming and telling us that, buddy, you have the watch, we have the time, we are turning this whole thing around. Now we have the watch and we have the time too. So let's see how far you can take this, how long a war can you fight. And if you think about it from a simple DC bureaucratic perspective, putting 5,000 soldiers is not a very costly option. Genuine, generally, I mean, there, there are too much, too many other debates going on. China is becoming important. Russia is becoming important. Russian, you know, hacking uh, in DNC emails is much more important. Liberalism and versus kind of these authoritarian or these illiberal intolerances of bigger debate. Afghanistan, no one cares. So you know what? Let's just continue fighting. Let's keep the region happy. After all, the Indians are wanting us to fight. The, even the Chinese are like, please, okay, it's, you know, don't leave early. The Iranians are also actually saying, and I was part of this review process which uh, the famous review process in which you know uh, various kind of analysts came together to draft that document that speech for Trump of course that has nothing to do with that speech uh, but with the process and it is very clear that barring the Taliban and the Pakistani side and to some extent China no one wants Americans to leave actually so there is a very good reason why that speech and it was welcomed by India Today, the status is that till the time the Americans are fighting, let them fight, good for us. But if things go really bad, and if Taliban comes in a way, in a politically important way, then we will have some sort of a dialogue with them. That thread can be picked up where we left. So you can really see how domestic politics of Afghanistan, uh, international political environment, and India's desire to strike a balance. And today, India is trying to strike a balance by supporting the Afghan security forces and intelligence to actually be able to deliver something when they sit across the table with the Pakistanis in uh, discussing or debating reconciliation. It's not just Pakistan coming and putting pressure. You should have a TTP leader in your jail who you can trade with. That is balanced today, if not like the pre-Soviet intervention. Thank you so much.